Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Sojourn. As Daniel said, we're grateful that you're gathered with us this morning. And if you are new here, we'd love uh, to meet you. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And so please feel free to come up and say hello uh, after the service today. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, as we have been over the last uh, few months. Really took a little break, but jumped back in last week. Uh, so if you need a copy of the Bible this morning, would you just raise your hand? We'll have a couple of people bring a copy of God's Word around to you. We want you to have that. Uh, to be able to read along with us this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. So just keep your hand up till they find you. And if you don't actually own a copy of God's Word, uh, please feel free to take that home with you. That's our gift to you. Uh, but as we get settled in this morning, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and uh, ask for Him to help us in our time. So let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning, and we do just want to ask for help. We pray that you'd help us today. We pray that you would open up our, our minds, our hearts, our ears, our eyes to see you in, in your word this morning. We pray that we would hear from you this morning. They pray that we would think about you this morning. And so I pray that as we open up your word, that you would minister to us by the power of your spirit. Father, I come before you and before this group of people weak. There's nothing I can do in my own strength and ability to communicate your truth apart from your spirit. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work in and through me this morning as we open your word, as this word is preached this morning, that what would be clear is that you are a God over all of us, that you love us, that you care for us, that you are mighty and strong, and that you use weak people to do your work so that you might get glory, so that you might get praise. And that's not just me, that's every single person in this room. Lord, we are a weak people in need of your grace and your help. And so we pray this morning that through our time in your word, as we approach a challenging text, a challenging topic this morning, that you would help us today to heed your word, to digest your word, and that it would transform our lives. And so we give this time to you. We pray that it would be worshipful to you, that it would give praise to you this morning, and that by our time in your word, you would draw us ever closer to yourself. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Listen, church, we have a problem. Uh, we have a problem that's not just for our church and our community. It's really a problem for many churches and many church communities, the church at large. And it's not a new problem within Jesus' church, but it is a persistent problem in Jesus' church. It's a problem that deeply affects our relationships with one another. It's a problem that deeply affects our community with one another. It's a problem that deeply affects our witness, our example to a watching world around us that doesn't know Christ, but is watching us as we say that we know and follow Christ. I read an article this week that really hit this on the head. A pastor was reflecting on a, a lunch meeting that he had had with a good friend of his who uh, was not yet a follower of Jesus. So I just want to, I want you to listen to him tell this story that really hits the nail on the head about this problem that we have. This is what he says. A while back, I was having a business lunch at a sports bar in the area with a close friend who's an atheist. He's a great guy, very deep thinker. During lunch, he pointed at the large TV screen on the wall that was set to a channel recapping the fall of a prominent pastor. He pointed his finger at the TV and said, that is the reason I will not become a Christian. 
Many of the things you say make sense, but that keeps me away. It was well after the story had died down about this pastor, so I had to study the screen for a second to see what my friend was talking about. I assumed he was referring to this fallen pastor's hypocrisy. And so I said, hey man, not all of us do things like that. And he laughed and said, Michael, you just proved my point. See, that guy said sorry a long time ago. Even his wife and kids stayed and forgave him, but all you Christians still seem to hate him. You guys can't forgive him and let him back into your good graces. Every time you talk to me about God, you explain that he will take me as I am. You say he forgives all my failures and will restore my hope. And as long as I stay outside the church, you say God wants to forgive me. But that guy, he failed while he was one of you. And most of you are still vicious to him. Then he uttered words that left me reeling. You Christians eat your own. Always have. Always will. Man, is he right? Is that who we are as God's people? Is that who we are as Jesus' church? Do we eat our own? Well, Paul the Apostle Paul seems to address this temptation that, we're, that we have as believers. In Galatians chapter 5, he says this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But then he says this, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Maybe some of you have seen this before. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ and you really resonate what this guy in the story says, that your perception of the church is that we are hypocritical towards one another and really do eat our own. Or maybe you have experienced this on a very personal level in your own life. But whatever your exposure is to the problem of eating your own, it isn't the way that God's kingdom people are supposed to, are called to live in relationship with one another. It's not Jesus' best for you, and it's not Jesus' best for me. It's not what he's called us to, how he's called us to live in light of the grace and mercy of the King and his kingdom. And so as we get into our text today in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and we start to continue to look at uh, Jesus' teaching on his kingdom, on this inverted kingdom, this upside-down kingdom, we see Jesus zero in on this issue with his people. And as we'll see in this text, all of us can struggle with a bad case of plank eye. But there's good news because God provides grace that heals. And so my hope for our time in God's word today is that he will use his word, his preached word this morning, to transform us, to not be a community that's marked by being judgmental, to not be marked by having critical spirits towards one another, but be marked by love and grace and helping one another strive for the holiness that God is calling us to. So with that, let's jump into the text and may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Again, if you haven't already, you can open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6. This is Jesus' word to you and to me this morning. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own 
eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So far, we've seen Jesus press on what life looks like when we've come close to the King. What life looks like for us as His people as we seek to live in the here and now of the Kingdom of God. He's talked about this inverted nature of His inverted Kingdom. He's called us to be a people who live a quiet and humble life, a quiet and humble pursuit of life found in Him and Him alone. And then we get to chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the last chapter in Matthew on this sermon, on the Sermon on the Mount. It's been Matthew chapter 5, 6, and now we're in 7. And as we get into this, we see kind of the, the tone and the tenor of this text seems to change a bit, kind of what Jesus is talking about. For the rest of chapter 7, he intensely presses on and challenges his people, you and me, on how we live. How do we live before him? How do we live before one another in community with one another? And how do we live before others that are outside of the church? But the question we can ask ourselves is, why is Jesus talking about this particular topic now? Why is he bringing this up right now? Why is he talking about being judgmental towards his followers? Why is he talking about having a critical spirit to his followers? I mean, this really seems like it would be better suited to talk about to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the religious elite people of the day, those that often placed heavy burdens on other people, it seems like they would be the best people for Jesus to be talking to here. But if we go all the way back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we see that the people Jesus is referring to here are not those outsiders. He's talking to his people, those who have come close to him. So why is he talking to them? And not these Pharisees, those that often look down their noses at those that they thought were less spiritual, less mature, less holy than they are. I think the reason that Jesus is bringing this up now, that he's talking about this in light of his kingdom, is that there's a temptation that can arise for all of us towards self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a word we throw around, but it kind of explains itself. It's saying that we have our own righteousness that's, that's brought about within ourselves. We have a self-righteousness. It's something that's attached to us and the things we do. And so there's a temptation, even for God's people, who have come close to Jesus towards self-righteousness, just like those Pharisees. See, Jesus' people, in coming close to Jesus, you and I can forget who we were and how we came. We can be tempted to think that what makes us disciples, that what makes us followers of Jesus is the new standard of our lives. That, that because we live in the ways of Jesus, the ways that he called us to, that that's what makes us disciples. And that what makes us disciples is that we do what's better, not worse, what's good, not bad, what's right, not wrong. We can have the mentality that I am a disciple of Jesus because I'm following him. But church, that's not true. That's false. See, what makes you and me disciples in this life is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, period. What makes you and me disciples of Jesus is not our following, it's our calling. It's our calling that Jesus sought us out, that he came to us, that he called us to himself. And it's out of that calling that the following flows. 
And because Jesus has called us to himself, it's changed everything for us. It's radically reoriented our lives and our hearts. It's flipped everything upside down. The gospel changes everything for you and for me. And so we need to understand that our life with Jesus then isn't secured based on anything that we do. It's secure because Jesus keeps us. He keeps us united to himself. But this temptation can arise, and so Jesus gives warning. He gives instruction to his people on the reality of what it means that we've come close to him and how that should impact our lives and relationships with one another, how we actually look at one another in community. And so we're going to break this text down into four points. The first one is the issue of judging. Our second point is spec inspectors. Our third point, plank removal. And our fourth and final point, a gracious community. So let's jump into the first point, the issue of judging. We see this in verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus is setting the scene for us of what life, the life he is calling his people to, what it's supposed to look like. And he, but he kind of starts with the negative, right? He says, don't do something. Don't judge others. Why? Because you will also be judged. How you judge others, whatever measuring mechanism you place on others that you use, it will be used to measure you as well. Now, self-righteous people are like, yeah, that's cool. Right? I mean, that's great. Fine. Finally. Finally. Jesus is bringing it down. Finally. I should be held to the same standard as everybody else because I meet it. I'm good with that. But this really messes, the misses the heart of the matter. And James chapter 2, James kind of sheds a bit more light on the seriousness of this issue and what Jesus is talking about. In James chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty by, by God. And then he says this, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, it's important to understand here what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that we shouldn't have discernment, that that we shouldn't be able to look and say, I I believe that the Bible, that God's word says that this is right or this is wrong. That's not what he's saying. It's not that we shouldn't have convictions about things, that we shouldn't have the ability to judge those kinds of things. That's not what he's calling us to, not to kind of have a a wishy-washy way of looking at life and the world around us to discern and judge between what is right and wrong and what is good and evil. No, what Jesus is talking about here is not, having a con- is not condemning someone when they do do the wrong things. Not condemning someone when they do reject certain convictions and they're struggling in life. That's what Jesus is calling his people to. Not to throw those things out, but not to have a condemning attitude. See, the sense of the word here for judge or judgment is to not be judgmental. Not to have a critical spirit, a condemning attitude towards other people. John Wesley, who was a pastor many, many years ago, says this, the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. Something else that's important to understand here, though, is that Jesus is also not calling his people not to speak into each other's lives. This isn't saying, well, you know, we got to be careful. We don't want anybody to think we're judging them, so we're just not going to say anything. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is not calling us to shirk back from holiness, to pull back out of fear that we might come across as judging. That's not what he's calling us to here. 
Jesus takes personal holiness very seriously. Jesus takes corporate holiness collectively as the body of Christ. He takes it very seriously. His people are set apart by nature of coming close to him. They've left the kingdom of darkness. They've left the kingdom of this world and come into his kingdom. And so he takes our holiness seriously. He is set on making you and me more like himself. And so we should live lives and strive to live lives that correspond to that. But again, we have to recognize the gospel changes and transforms everything about our lives. But, but, in valuing holiness, we have to recognize that we do not hold a position of perfection over other people. That we all are in desperate need of God's saving and transforming grace. So there's the issue of judging, but how do we get off track? How do we start to develop this judgmental attitude and this this speck inspecting? Which leads to our next point. We all can be speck inspectors. We see this in verses 3 through 4. Jesus uses an illustration and he uses hyperbole to kind of paint the picture of of the ridiculousness of being judgmental. And he asks two questions that are related but different. The first question, he says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log or the plank that's in your own eye? This is an illustration here, right? He's being kind of crazy, kind of ridiculous here. He's saying, you know, you you seem to notice that little piece of dust, that little speck. Maybe it's a little piece of sawdust or something that's caught in your brother's eye. And you zero in on that. You notice that. But at the same time, you don't notice that you literally have a log coming out of your face. I mean, that's what he's saying. A log, a plank is like just jutting, protruding out of your face. And you're like, bro, I think you got something in your eye. I mean, he's painting this ridiculous picture. He's like, what in the world are you doing to think that you notice this little thing, but you don't actually notice in yourself? And he's obviously comparing this to sin. He's saying, in other words, why do you see sin in your brother, but not in yourself? You zero in on his or her sin, but don't seem to even notice that you also have sin. So the first question really is about our focus on someone else's sin. But then he asked a similar question. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log or plank in your own eye? Again, picture this, right? You're like, hey, let me help you out here. Hold on, just real quick. Let me just get this out of your eye. And you're like smacking the dude in the head with that log that's coming out of your face. I mean, that's crazy. Why would you think that that would be the right thing to do? And so He's focusing here on how how can you say to someone, let me remove the sin. Let me remove your sin. Let me do that and and remove it from your eye when in my own life I'm not paying any attention to the sin that's actually going on in my life. I'm not seeking to remove that. This is more about our intent and our motivation with people we're in community with. So what's going on here? Jesus is painting a picture of someone who's judging harshly. This is a fault finder. A fault finder. He, someone who puts the worst possible uh, construction on somebody's motives. They think the worst in your motivation. They, they pour cold water on your schemes. They're ungenerous towards mistakes. It's a picture of a person with a critical spirit. As one pastor says, the critic always looks for something else to criticize. He cannot feel he is sound unless he is constantly denouncing and condemning. But see, the worst part is that the person with the critical spirit, this speck inspector, is actually setting himself up as one who can make these kinds of assessments. That he has the full competence and authority to sit in judgment over another person. He's fine being in the judgment seat. 
And ironically, this might be the ultimate picture of arrogance. I mean, very simply put, the speck inspector seeks to act like God, to be the true judge of our hearts and our motives and our lives. And God alone holds that place in that position. But we all know that we're not God. And we all know at the end of the day that we're not perfect. But see, I think all of us have a fatal tendency. We all have a fatal tendency to, to, to maximize to maximize, maybe even exaggerate the faults in other people while at the very same time we minimize the gravity of our own. I know I've done that. Have you ever done that? Maybe it's with a friend or your spouse or a coworker or a roommate. It's very easy to maximize the things that they're doing wrong while quickly brushing aside whatever it is that you might be doing. If she was better at this, then I wouldn't do this. If he didn't do this or say these things to me, then I wouldn't react this way. It's always someone else, not us. I think we all have a fatal tendency to, to head that direction. And it, it's the ultimate hypocrisy when we actually paint the picture that taking the speck out of our brother or sister's eye is an act of love and kindness. When likely what we're actually doing is seeking to inflate our own ego and our own self-righteousness. I think that's Jesus' point. It's not necessarily that we have worse sin than other people. It's that we have sin. We have sin in our life. Paul hits this in Romans chapter 2, talking to religious people. He says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And then catch this. He says this, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. See, Sojourn, this is important for us to understand because it affects our relationships with one another. It affects the culture that our community is creating and existing in. It's important to understand because we can often think that our critical spirit, our speck inspecting, is actually helpful, that it's serving the person, it's serving the church. But see, I think oftentimes self-righteousness and this kind of attitude turns into false benevolence. Let me help you with that speck. Brother, I love you. I need to speak some truth to you. Let me help you with that piece of dust in your eye. But as one pastor says, he says, I have seen the most unchristian aggression practiced by ostentatiously humble people who come with a concern. See, I think sometimes you and I can kind of have a king of the hill mindset to holiness. You guys ever play King of the Hill when you were a kid? Not the TV show. Like the actual game, King of the Hill. Like it was a mound, uh, maybe it was an actual hill or mound of dirt or something. And the goal was, I'm going to be the King of the Hill. If you come up, I'm throwing you down. And if I want to be the King of the Hill, then the way I get up there is I get up there and I throw you off so that I can be on top. See, I think you and I can have a, a kind of King of the Hill mentality to holiness. We're fine. We like to be elevated up on the top of the hill so that we can look down on other people and tell them how they're not getting it right. Man, if you were really as holy as I am, then you'd be able to be up here, but, but you're not. And so I'm up here and you're not. And so we can look down our noses at people that are not quite where we're at. Haven't quite figured out what it looks like yet to, to live a life fully in obedience to Jesus. They haven't quite made it to that level yet. Instead of actually helping one another. Instead of saying, brother, sister, let me pull you up here. 
Let me help you to actually learn to love and walk with Christ in every aspect of your life. See, when God's people do this, we will find ourselves in the company of the people Jesus came down on the hardest and the most. The religious elite, the Pharisees. See, having a critical spirit and being judgmental go hand in hand and they must be addressed among God's people. Because if we don't talk about this, if we don't actually address this, if we just kind of keep going on with things as they are, what's going to happen? When we're speck inspectors who focus on our brother or sister's sin and not any sin in our own life and our own hearts, what happens? It starts to create a community of fear, of, of hiding, of pretending. It propagates guardedness and shame and guilt. It breeds death, not life. It creates division, not unity. It doesn't help anyone actually get closer to the king. It tends to push people away from the gospel of grace because we seem to have forgotten that. And straight up, it's just a bad witness to the watching world around us. Because who wants to be a part of a community that eats its own? What's attractive about that? See, if we're a community where people don't have the freedom to mess up in huge ways, they don't have the freedom to be honest about the sin that they're struggling with. They don't have freedom to say, I really messed up. I wasn't walking with the Lord in this way. I wasn't seeking to walk in obedience this way. If they don't have the freedom to actually do that and still be loved and still be cared for as they seek and strive to walk in repentance, then what in the world are we doing? What in the world are we doing? What is the gospel that we're believing? Who is the Jesus we're following? See, I think we need to ask ourselves when we struggle with a critical spirit is whose image are we actually protecting? Whose name are we trying to keep clean? Surely it isn't Jesus' name. Because we know as we read the Gospels that Jesus was fine hanging out with people who had jacked up, messed up lives. Jesus was fine hanging out with sinners and prostitutes and outcasts He's the one, after all, who told us to leave the 99 and go after the one. To rescue them, to restore them, not to chop them up, cook them, and eat them. See, we can think we're helping others. Others who are blind to their blindness, but not recognizing that our judging actually makes us more blind. Church, let me ask you this question. When we fail, and we will all fail, we will all fail, Man, maybe that's freeing for you today to know that. That you will fail at some point in your life. You'll struggle at some point in life. But let me ask you this, church, when we do this, are we more prone to care for one another or crucify one another? As one scholar says, for those who follow Jesus to act as if they can, on their own, determine what is good and what is evil is to betray the work of Christ. See, Jesus is using hyperbole here to show the silliness of our judgmentalism in light of who we are, in light of where we've come from. Because let's not forget that someone was already crucified for us, which leads to our third point, plank removal. We see this in verse 5. See, our judging, if our judging, was really based on a, a hate of evil, then wouldn't we start with our own lives and not someone else's? If that's really what this is about, that we, man, I just, I, I long for holiness, I long for God's glory. If that's really our true heartbeat, wouldn't we start with ourselves and not look to others first? 
See, Jesus calls us hypocrites because when we judge others without taking a look, a long, hard look at our own lives and our own hearts, we're acting like we are better when in reality we have that board, that plank protruding from our own eye. But see, what heals the case of plank eye that all of us can struggle with is the grace of the gospel. Because in the gospel, we're reminded that we are dead in our sin that we are rebels, that our attempts at righteousness, our attempts at earning our favor with God to being in right relationship with Him by what we do are all filthy rags apart from Christ. In the gospel, we are reminded there is a king of the hill. But on the top of that hill, he didn't look down in disgust on you and me at our sin and shortcomings. No, on that hill, he was nailed to a cross to bear the weight of all your sin and all of your rebellion and all of your shame. He took that on his back for you and for me so that we might overcome. See, on that hill, all are welcome because at the foot of the cross, the foot of the cross, the ground is level. It's a place for desperate men and women, people who recognize their deep need for Jesus and who come to receive radical grace and radical forgiveness and radical transformation. Not because they earned it, not because they're worthy of it, because the Father, through His Son, by His Spirit, gives it to us freely and fully. See, in the Gospel, we're reminded that we've come close to Jesus, not because we are righteous, or because we've figured it out, or because we've cleaned ourselves up, but because Jesus called us to Himself. When we were dead, He called your name, and you rose up from the grave, and you came to Him. Dead people don't do a whole lot of stuff. But Jesus spoke to you and he called you to himself. It wasn't because of anything you did. And now through your union with him, by his spirit, you are being made like him. The old is gone, the new has come. See, in verse 5, Jesus is calling his people to humility. He's ruling out pride of viewing oneself as better because we recognize that we're all broken and in need of restoration ourselves. As another scholar says, following Christ requires our recognizing that the one I am tempted to judge is just like me. A person who has received forgiveness manifest in the cross. See, before you and I can actually help our brothers and sisters remove the specks that are in their eyes, we have to be committed to removing the plank in our own. And when we're striving by grace and the power of the Spirit to kill and remove the sin that remains in our own own lives, then we're able to help others do the same. See, we can't miss what Jesus is saying here. Let's not miss what he says in verse 5. As we remove these planks out of our own eyes, then what does he say? Then we'll be able to see clearly to help our brothers, to help our sisters. See, we're still called to help one another. Jesus is not calling us to be lazy about sin. We need each other. We're called to encourage and exhort one another every day as long as it's called today because sin lies to you. It's deceitful. So we need each other. But when it starts with an accurate discernment of our own hearts and our own lives, we can then come to our brothers and sisters with compassion and tenderness because we can say, yeah, me too. Me too. Having a self-awareness and an other's awareness that's shaped by a God-awareness creates in us tenderness in our perception of the sin that's in other people's lives. So this is not a call to overlook real sin. You might say, but wait, but wait, don't, but, but they're, look what they're doing. 
Do you see what they're doing? They're messing up their life. They're not honoring Christ. They say they know Jesus, but they're not living like they are. Don't, did you see that? Yes, that might be present. But this is about your heart and your attitude and how you approach that person, how you come to them to deal with it. An early church father of the fourth century said this, talking about this particular thing of helping one another grow in holiness. He says this, correct him. Correct your brother, correct your sister, but not as a foe, nor as an adversary exacting a penalty, but as a physician providing medicine. Even more as a loving brother, a loving sister who longs to rescue and restore. Now, it's a quick side note, and I think Jesus starts to hit on this a bit in verse 6. If someone is unrepentant, then there's not a whole lot you can do. If someone doesn't want to see sin removed out of their life, there's not a whole lot you can do. And I think that's part of what he's getting at in verse 6. And to be honest, verse 6 is a bit confusing. But, but I think what it tells us is that grace can be abused. The gospel of grace is not permission to go on as you are, to building your kingdom instead of following the king. The gospel of grace is not permission to keep sinning. But some people will trample on grace. Some people will even attack you for your use and understanding of grace. And so there is a place and a time for discipline, for for church discipline, to deal with the seriousness of sin in each other's lives. Titus chapter 3 gives reference to this. It says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. But listen, Church discipline, any kind of disciplinary action towards someone who's unrepentant is couched in, must be couched in a heart and a desire for restoration. Born out of a heart of love and humility, clothed in a garment of lavish grace and patience. Not quick, self-righteous judgment. I mean, your eye is one of the most delicate parts of your body. It's one of the most delicate parts of your body, so it's not... Uh, lost on Jesus that he uses this as his illustration point. I mean, you, we know this, right? You've gotten, maybe you've been out on a summer day or something and a gnat has flown into your eye. I don't know why it's like they're attracted to your eyes, but like just like flies into your eye and you can feel it. It's in there. So annoying, frustrating, and it's hard to get it out. I mean, I don't have contacts. So some of you have contacts are way better at this. Like touching my eye like freaks me out. Like I can't even really do it. Like you just instinctively shut your eye when something's in there and you're just blinking and so to get it out, to get something out of your eye, you have to be gentle. You have to be patient. You, ha- you can't just be haphazard and violent. Right? You see a gnat fly into my eye, like, bro, let me get that out for you. And you just like jab your finger in my eye. Like, that's not going to go well. But sometimes when we approach holiness, we can have that same attitude. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Your eye is delicate. It needs to be gently and carefully and not haphazardly cleaned out. But it still needs to be cleaned out. It still needs to be cleaned out. It's good to have zeal for God's kingdom. It's good to have zeal for God's glory. It's good to have zeal for holiness, but in the place of being God's kingdom people, not being God. Because you're not him. You're in need of him. See, you and I as God's people are called to restore a sinning brother, but we're called to do it with the spirit of gentleness, not harshness, not ultimatums. So church, remove the plank in your own eye before you help your brother with the speck in his. And this leads to our last point, a gracious community. Listen, I want us to be a kingdom people. A kingdom people who are following after a king 
after Jesus, who've come close to the King and are seeking to walk with Him, I want us as a church, as a family, to be marked by holiness. Where more and more what we're seeing happen in our lives as we look at one another and we help one another is a, a growing and a deepening love for more and more of Jesus and a lessening of our love for our sin. I want to see that to continue to be cultivated within our community. I long for us to have a culture in our community where we do strive for holiness together. That we love each other enough to actually help each other follow Jesus. But are we or have we at times been tempted to create a culture which everybody looks at everybody else to see if they're keeping their standards up? Is that really what sometimes happens? Do we at times in seeking to help one another strive for holiness actually do more harm than good? See, in the church, in the name of helping one another, we can embody the the short, pithy parable that Zach Eswine highlights in his book, Sensing Jesus. Just a couple of lines. He says this, I have seen a man on the bank of the river buried up to his knees in mud. Picture that. And some men came to give him a hand to help him out, but they pushed him further in up to his neck. Do you you see that? The guy's stuck. You're stuck. You're stuck in your sin. You're struggling and you're stuck up to your knees in mud. And your friends, in the name of helping you, come to you to help you. But they don't actually pull you out. They push you further in. Instead of helping, they heap. Instead of helping, they condemn. Instead of helping, they push down. They burden. But see, when you and I remember the grace we've received, the kindness of the Lord that's led us to repentance, we'll actually be in a place to help our brothers do the same. So church, this is not a call to be blind to sin that we see in each other's lives. We probably have some of the best views into each other's lives. It's not a call to be blind to sin. It's a plea to you and to me to be generous in grace towards one another when we do sin. It isn't a call either to be silent until you're perfect. Don't read this and think, well, wait a minute, until it means I can't actually say anything to anyone until I have no sin in my life. That's never going to happen until Jesus comes back, or he brings you home. So he can't be saying that either. It's not, what he's saying, though, is to, to not be self-righteous, not be critical, but instead to be a humble, grace-dependent friend to those around you. A friend who doesn't push your brother or sister further into the mud, but comes alongside of them and walks with them and pulls them out and carries them back to the foot of the cross and the empty tomb once again. He says, brother, sister, remember who you are. See, we are able to do that when we remember what God has done and is doing in our own hearts and lives. And when we do that, we can be the gracious community of kingdom people that Jesus is calling us to be who actually help one another become more like Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, agrees with this. He says, thus the disciples do not stand in a position from which the other person is attacked. Instead, In the truthfulness of Jesus' love, they approach the other person with an unconditional offer of community. See, change in your life and my life is a community project. We need each other. We need each other. And so when we fail, we can confess our sin to one another and then help each other get back up and continue to walk and follow Jesus. And then we rinse and we repeat. And we rinse and we repeat. Because over and over again, we're going to need each other to help each other get back up. Remembering that we have received grace upon grace from Christ, and so we give grace upon grace to one another.
See, when we do this, we create a community that's shaped not by condemnation, shaped not by self-righteousness, shaped not by having critical spirits, but instead shaped by humility and love and grace and forgiveness. Let me just say to you this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ and you're like, yeah, see, I, again, I resonate with that guy at the beginning that I, I feel like what church is all about is just rule following. And if you don't match up, if you don't measure up, then people are going to shake their finger at you and kick you out or treat you differently. I hope what you're hearing this morning is that my hope and our hope as a church is not to, to image that, to not do that, but instead to say, no, we are in desperate need of grace just like you are. And so if you recognize that this morning, you're not a follower of Christ, but you recognize, look, I don't have it all together, neither do we. But what we do have is Christ, and we want you to have him too. To come to the foot of the cross to say, I'm in need of redemption, I'm in need of rescuing. And so if you find yourself in that place, let me invite you this morning to trust in Christ. And then to get into this mess with us. So we can help one another become more and more like Jesus. To close, I just want to give us a couple of real practical things. How do we then actually help one another when we see sin in each other's lives? Because what I don't want you to do this morning, I don't want you to walk out of the room going like, well, I guess I'm never going to say anything then. Because I don't want somebody to say, did you listen to the sermon? You said not to be judgmental, so what are you doing? I don't want that to be what happens, right? So we, just, we start dancing on eggshells around each other. So what do we actually do? A few quick things. First thing is give people permission to speak into your life. Invite them in. Say, brother, sister, you you have a better vantage point of my life than I do at times, so would you please, if you see something in me, would you speak to that? Invite them into your life knowing that you can't see everything. The second thing, though, is be the first to confess your own sin and need for Jesus. Be the first, if you see something in someone else's life, to to create a culture where you can go and and readily share your own sin and your own struggles. See, I think that's part of what Jesus is getting at here. Our, Our own personal confession in the context of community is one of the best ways to start to allow others to see their need to confess and to help them actually remove the planks in their own eyes. Because there's no pretense there's no pretending. Everybody's just, man, we're, we need grace. We need transformation. So be the first to confess your own sin. I hope that is apparent by anybody that's up here on, a sta- on stage and preaching or in your community group, your leaders, that we are quick to share our shortcomings with you. I share my sin, my flaws, my failures with you. Because I need Jesus just as much as you do. And I hope that that helps you know that you do also, that it's a safe place for you to share your life. We have to be willing to create a community where it's okay to fall flat on your face and know that people are going to be there to help pick you back up. Christ has set us free to learn from and listen to one another. The third thing we can do to actually cultivate a community where we're striving for holiness but not being judgmental, the third thing is to remind the other person of who they are, that we're united in Christ, that we're secure in Christ, that we are a new creation. Point people back to the gospel not to checking a box or jumping through hoops. And lastly, man, don't keep yourself at a distance until someone shapes up. Don't stiff arm them. Jump in. Let them know that you aren't going anywhere. See, I think sometimes we're fearful when, we, when somebody comes at us because we feel like, well, man, I can't be, you need to, you need to work on that before we, can, before we can be friends. Man, let somebody know I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here with you. Let's share something in my own life where somebody's done this to me. A friend of mine in the church said, hey man, I need to talk to you about some stuff. And, okay, and, and uh, 
he wanted to confront me on some stuff in my life, something in particular that he saw in my marriage and how I was being a husband. And, and, he, and we got on, we talked with one another, and, and, he, and he spoke very directly to me, and he re- essentially, I would call it a rebuke. He was, he was rebuking me for things that he was seeing that weren't uh, walking in a way that he felt like were honoring to Christ and really loving my wife and my family. And so he, he came to me, but you know what? I, I didn't have fear in that because I felt loved by him in that. But the reason I felt loved is because he has communicated to me more often than not, brother, I am here with you. I'm not going anywhere. I love you, and I'm your friend. I didn't feel attacked. I didn't feel like he was being judgmental or overly critical. That he actually wanted to help me. He actually wanted to help me. That he actually wanted to help me and not judge me in the midst of that. And so I received it, and our relationship isn't fractured. Our relationship isn't messed up. I don't want to not be around him now. If anything, I want it more. Father, thank you for loving me enough to say something to me. But he didn't come from a position lifted up, looking down. He just came to me saying, dude, I struggle with the same thing, the same kinds of things. But I want to point out in your life so that you can course correct, and I want to help you do that. Would you help me too? And it's possible, church, to live this kind of way. We can be a a gracious community marked by holiness when what is never in question is that we love one another. What's never in question is that we are for one another. What's never in question is that we believe the best in one another. And we want to help one another run the race that's before us, knowing that we all need help too. So let me ask you a question, just to diagnose your own heart and your own life this morning. Who have you been critical of this week? Where where do you sense a critical spirit within you? Maybe it's someone within your home, family member, friend, someone within this community. And has your focus on their faults blinded you to your own? Sojourn, brothers and sisters, let's not devour one another. Let's not devour one another, but instead orient ourselves around Jesus and around the cross. And then in love, as Christ is bringing renewal and transformation in our own lives, that we would look to our brothers and sisters and long for that same renewal to happen in them as well. As an an overflow of our hearts, as an overflow of a life that's so overwhelmed by transforming grace that we can't wait to see that happen in somebody else's life. Sojourn, we need each other. God has given us to each other. And the world will know we have come close to the king by how we love one another, not eat one another. We can all have a bad case of plank eye, but God in his grace can bring healing. So let's walk side by side with our eyes on Jesus until he brings us all, all the way home. Amen? We're going to come to the communion table now. And on the table, there's, there's two elements. There's bread and there's a cup. And these two elements signify something, they symbolize something. The bread is a symbol of Christ's body broken for you. The cup is a picture of Christ's blood shed for you. It's, it's not a meal of condemnation. It's a meal of grace. And so you don't need to sit in your seat knowing this morning, man, I have been judgmental. I struggle with that. I have a critical spirit. So I can't come to the table. No, you need to run to the table this morning because in this, the presence of Christ is manifest in this meal to communicate to you, I know, but there's grace for you. And as you receive the bread and you receive the cup this morning, walk in repentance if you know you've struggled, that you do struggle with being judgmental or having a critical spirit and know as you eat that bread and drink that cup that there is more grace for you. And may it cause you, help you, 
to turn and renew a desire within you to love others with the grace and the patience that you've received through Christ and to do so for the glory of God and for the good of one another. And again, for those of you that are not followers of Christ, we're grateful, we're glad that you're here this morning, that God brought you to gather with us this morning. I just want to say to you again, man, we want you to experience God's grace through Christ today. And so I'm going to ask you not to come forward to the table if you don't know Jesus If you've never trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sin, I want to ask you not to come forward because this doesn't do anything for you. It's a reminder of what's already been done for you. And that happens in Christ. And so if you don't know Christ today, maybe God's leading you today to start that relationship with him. Would you just sit in your seat, pray, God, I need your grace. I'm desperate for salvation and forgiveness of my sin. Would you give that to me today? And here's the good news. God will. God will. He desires to save you. So confess that this morning and let somebody know that you want to start a relationship with Jesus. That's why we're here as a church. We want to walk with you in that. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or head to the tables in the back. I do think this morning that if you're a gluten-free person, those options are only available up front. So just FYI. (laughs) But those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or the back. Tear a piece of bread off. Take a small cup to drink and hear what Christ has done for you, spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning, very simply, I just pray that you would heal us, that you would heal us of our critical spirits, that you'd heal us of our judgmental tendencies, especially in relationship with one another. Father, I pray that you'd shape us to be gracious and patient. Father, I pray that you'd allow us to be a community that's marked by holiness, that strives for that, and that we would also seek to lovingly help one another in the race that's set before us. Lord, would you transform us as, an indivi- as individuals and through that transform us as a community. We need your help. We pray as we come forward now that you'd encourage us through the bread and through the cup of the grace we've received in Christ. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.